Okay, we'll do this for now. Okay. Barry, is that, that on? No. Okay. All right, now I can't uh, run across the stage. <laughs> I was just saying, sitting up front, I can hear you guys sing strong, and I think that's what the new year has brought. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for worshiping with us together. Uh, you know, have you ever asked yourself what a Bible character you might identify with most? Maybe it's Paul, you know, living a life of, uh, without Christ and then getting saved in some spectacular way. Or maybe it's Daniel who refused to bow the knee. Maybe it was uh, Jonah and you're running from God. I don't know, but uh, this week I thought about that question and I think Peter is the one who kind of jumps off the page for me. You know, I can probably relate more with his failures than with his successes, but because uh, he had a lot of failures, but he also had some mountaintop experiences. And today marks the, the start of our study of the book of First Peter. And so I'd invite you to turn your Bibles there to First Peter. You know, introducing a new study or a new series is always exciting for me because we get to engage with Scripture. And this morning, we get to learn who Peter was. What was he about? And and we're just going to be looking at two short verses. And I want to show you, really, the amazing grace that's displayed in the life of Peter and then the amazing grace displayed in in the Trinity as it functions in salvation. Alright, follow along as I read verses 1 and 2, and this is the word of the Lord. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Well, we can't go much further than that first word. Peter. It's actually a name, right? Understanding who Peter was will help us understand the rest of the book. And we're going to spend a lot of time this morning really looking and examining the life of Peter. What made him tick? Because once we understand Peter, we can see that his life experiences are woven through these five chapters of this book of 1 Peter. So let's look at the first phrase there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the fact that Peter can call himself an apostle is evidence of that amazing grace, right? Peter's highs rise to the highest peaks and his lows devastating him to the deepest valleys. You know, Peter is one of the most familiar characters in the Bible, and you are probably at least a little bit familiar with him. And my goal, again, is just to introduce you to Peter, see who he was. Peter's name is mentioned 160 times in the New Testament. And it wasn't his given name, though. His parents didn't name him Peter. His name was uh, Cephas, or Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John. But Jesus renamed him, if you recall, to Peter, Petros. And so our first bullet point uh, this morning, you'll see on the front page of your notes, is just centering around who Peter was, helping us to understand what type of man he was. Alright, so we'll jump around. I hope your fingers are a little bit nimble this year. We're going to go bounce around a couple of passages. But we want to understand what makes this man tick. So, number one, who was Peter? First and foremost, he was a regular man. He was a regular man. He's an ordinary type of guy. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4 verse 18, 
This is where Jesus is calling the disciples to himself and where we, where we find out what Peter did before he came to follow Christ. If you look down at your scriptures, look at verse 18. It says, now Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. That's important, okay? He's walking by a, a, a body of water. And he saw two brothers, Simon, who they call Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And we learn so much just about that, but it's about Peter and that little description. First off, he's a fisherman, right? He's an ordinary blue collar type of guy. Right? Fishermen were up from sun up to sun down. And they were some of the hardest working men in history. You know, I'm, I'm no gifted angler. But uh, one thing I do know about fishing is that you need persistence. You need to keep going. You know, first century fishermen didn't have trolling motors or radar or synthetic power bait to put on the end of their hook. No. They went out with their, with their nets and they threw it over and over and over again. If you think of Peter, this is not some postcard, flawless, picturesque, gray-haired man casting his fly rod and the high country brooks to catch trout. No. He, he, he was, they, they used circular nets where they'd gather them up and they'd hold it in a particular way to cast it out so that it would fan out over the water and the weighted ends would drop down and capture the fish and two men would grab the end of the, with the, with the rope and pull the corners together much like a bed sheet. Right? They'd do this over and over and over again. And it wasn't just Peter doing this. It was with his brother, Andrew. And so, when I picture Peter in my mind, I just see this kind of tattered and sunburnt and rough-handed type of guy. Right? He's a man's man. And it's amazing that Jesus, when he goes to pick his disciples, he doesn't go to the Sanhedrin. He doesn't go into the synagogue to visit the Pharisees. He walks by the Sea of Galilee. And he says, hey, follow me. And so what does Peter do? He says, okay. And he drops the nets. And, and can you imagine that conversation with his wife? <laughs> Honey, I, you know, I quit work today and I went to go follow this Jesus guy. Well, we don't know exactly what happened as a result of that conversation. But we do know that he was married. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. See, listen. Christ did not choose Peter because he was some outstanding Jewish scholar. He was not chosen because he had some convincing skill or some spectacular rhetoric uh, persuasion skill or rabbinic level of knowledge of the law of God. No. He chose Peter because of God's amazing grace. That's it. There's nothing remarkable to find in him. He was just a normal guy. And that should encourage you and that should encourage me that God just doesn't go out looking just for the best of the best as we describe them. No, he goes looking for ordinary people like you and me to say, come, follow me. He was a regular man. Secondly, I want you to see that he's not just a regular man, he was a Christ-exalting man. He was a Christ-exalting man. Look at Matthew chapter 16, and I preach this uh, passage just... Not too long ago, and I'm not going to re-preach that. You can go back and listen to it. But starting at verse 13, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And some say John the Baptist. So others say Elijah, maybe one of the prophets. And then look at verse 16. Simon Peter, he goes and he answers for the group. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now how would you 
if you said those, to have Jesus, God in the flesh, say verses 17 and 18 to you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's amazing. Peter is acting here like the conduit straight from heaven as the Father revealed that to him. Now, have you ever known a talker? Someone who talks a lot? Someone who can't, you can't get an, a word in edgewise in a conversation? Someone who just doesn't know how to shut their mouth? Well, this was Peter. He always had something to say. Right? He always had an opinion about everything and anything, and he always had something to say about it. His, might, his, his mouth might have been shaped like his sandal because he put his foot in his mouth so many times. All right, as, and as much as, we are, as much as we're hard on Peter, the, right, Peter is he's the vocal leader of the disciples, in this passage, Matthew 18, he just said the most important thing that he has ever said. The Spirit of God has revealed to him that this, Jesus, was the Messiah. He was the long-expected Savior. And Peter found himself as the leader of the disciples, and his leadership skills were obvious within the group. And his discerning words, right, as he discerned what was happening in, as he's following Christ, he spoke and he exalted Christ in his words. And here in Matthew 16, verse 16, his thoughts and words were never better. He was a Christ-exalting man, and because of that, grace just flowed through his veins. Alright, number three. What kind of man was Peter? Peter was a fallible man. Peter was fallible. See, we do not believe, like the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, that Peter was the first pope. No, he was not the greatest. He was not the head of the church, because who is the head of the church? Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone. Peter, he was fallible. And I would venture to say, if Peter walked through those doors back there and you called him the Pope, he just might kick you in the shins. All right, that thought would be, like, would be reprehensible to him. He wasn't this great man without sin. No. Just, just drop down just two verses. Matthew 16, verse 21. And this is just a few moments after he said the best thing he could ever say. Look it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and to be killed and to be raised up on the third day. You know, I don't know, I don't know this to be true, but maybe Jesus took the disciples that day. He took them to Isaiah 53 and he said, yeah, that's me. I'm the lamb to be slain. I'm the one to die for all mankind's sin. I don't know if that's true. I guess in a sanctified imagination, I think that it's plausible. And then look what Peter does. Just moments, just moments after the most Christ-exalting words he could ever say. Look at verse 22. Peter pulls Jesus aside. You know, they leave the group. He he puts his arm around Jesus' shoulder. And Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. Jesus, what are you thinking? This will never happen to you. And so what did Jesus say to the supposed first pope? He said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. 
even though Jesus had clearly explained to him in verse 21, this is what must happen for sin to be paid for. Jesus was taken aside by Peter and he was rebuked. I I can't imagine. Jesus' patience was off the charts in this moment. Right? And I wonder, I wonder what the tone was like. What, what, how did Jesus say, verse 23, Who do you think you are? Right, you're going to unplug all the Old Testament prophecies and, and recreate the Messiah's plan? I mean, Peter, you're a, you're a leader, but there are limits here. Right? That's not the only example of Paul, uh, Peter's uh, uh, fallibility, right? You remember in Galatians how Paul confronted Peter to his face because he was expecting Gentiles to live like Jews. They, he wanted them to get circumcised. And it got so bad that he started, he started acting different depending on which group he was hanging around with. And he even started leading sweet Barnabas away. Barnabas the encourager. And this was... This was 25 years after the death of Christ, and and Peter is still struggling with his doctrine. That means that there's still hope for you and for me, right? We're a work in progress here as we learn. But Paul, he rebuked Peter, and he humiliated him in front of the church. And you can read the whole account for yourself, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21, on your own. But the point here is that Peter is publicly rebuked in front of the entire Galatian church for teaching wrong doctrine. And you might say, whoa, isn't that a bad thing? No, it's a hopeful thing. Because do you think that your doctrine is pure? Do you think your doctrine is perfect? Oh, that God would correct our errors. That he would give us hope from a, from a loving brother or sister who can show us where we're wrong from scripture. Yeah, Peter was a normal guy. He was a Christ-exalting guy. He was a fallible guy, just like you and me. And that's why God's amazing grace shines in Peter. And one of my favorite passages gives us the next answer to what kind of man Peter was. Number four, he was a passionate man. He was a passionate man. Do you remember when, uh, when Jesus walks on water? Do you remember what Peter does? He just about ran to Jesus and jumped out of the boat to go be with Jesus. He was a man of action, right? I, you know, I love that. He's a man of action. If you turn in your Bibles to John, John chapter 18, we'll see that Peter is kind of like a, an all or nothing man. Gives us a snapshot of the passion of Peter. Look at uh, chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where the garden was, and he entered with his disciples. Just uh, context here, Jesus had just given his upper room discourse and told the disciples about his coming death. And he continues, Now Judas, also who was betraying him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, meaning he had both the civil and religious authorities with him, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Verse 4, So Jesus, knowing all things that they were coming to him, I love that, there's no surprises for Jesus. He knows it. He went up forth and he said to them, Who do you seek? And the crowd answered him, saying, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. Your text, your Bible might say, I am he, but he literally said, I am. Who said that before? 
God. Yahweh God. And so Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. And, and he said to them, when, they said, when Jesus said, I am, listen, they drew back and they fell to the ground. He was saying, I am God. And that just overwhelmed them. Continuing on, therefore, he again asked them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If you seek me, let these disciples go their way and f- to fulfill the word which he had spoke. Of those who were given to me, I have not lost one. Now in verse 10, here we go. Simon Peter then, having a sword. Oh, Peter, why would you have a sword? <sighs> there are two kinds of swords, right? A long broad sword and a short sword and in this scripture here this is a dagger type short sword that we're talking about and he pulls out the sword and struck the high priest slave and cut off his right ear and by the way his name was Malchus so why did he cut off his ear why did Peter cut off his ear well most likely he was trying to cut off his head but as he was ducking it hit his ear and cleaned it whack cleaned it right off And so Jesus said to Peter, continue on in John 18, he put that sword back in its sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Still, in the garden, even now, Peter is trying to prevent what Christ was to accomplish. Now let's think about it though. You know, I don't think... I don't think Peter was saying, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin the plan of salvation for all the ages. I don't think that what was going through his head. No, but he, he, he acted that way out of his great and deep and abiding love for his Savior. Peter just loved Jesus. He was a man of passion. Next, number five, what kind of man was Peter? He was an arrogant man. He was an arrogant man. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and give you some context. This was right after the upper room, right after they had finished the Last Supper. And before they went down to the garden and to to see what uh, when Peter cuts off his ear. And so let's read in Matthew 26, verse 30. It says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, here's the arrogance, Though all may fall away, Peter's looking around at the other disciples, Though all may fall away because of you, I will never fade. I will never fall away. And there's a part of me that just admires his confidence. But look at verse 34. Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, meaning before the sun comes up, you will deny me three times. And then Peter, what does he do? He doubles down in verse 35. He says to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples, they just say, if it's good enough for Peter, I'll just say the same thing, right? And they all say that. And as much as we love Peter's passion, can you see that he is just, he's going directly against what Christ just said. Peter thought he knew better than Christ. And eventually his arrogance will catch the better of him. And how do we know that? How do we know that? 
Number six, he was a broken man. He was a broken man. Drop down in the same chapter to Matthew 26, verse 69. And this is while Jesus, he was on trial in front of Caiaphas. Verse 69 says, Peter was standing outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came up to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus in Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it with an oath. In other words, I swear, I do not know this man. And a little later, the bystanders came up to him and said, Peter, said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Meaning that he acted like Jesus. He talked like Jesus. And then Peter began to curse and swear. And do you, can you just imagine how childish... That is, right? I mean, he just threw out a bunch of foul language that was bleeped in Scripture for the purity of the reader. <laughs> right? And immediately, what does Scripture say? Look at, this, look at the text. Immediately, the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Peter had his faith shaken by persecution to such a degree that he disowned the Lord three times. And that brings us to our last point about Peter that should give us hope. Number seven, Peter was a restored man. Peter was a restored man. Turn to John chapter 21. John 21. I hope you're keeping up with all the page turning. Thank you for bearing with me here. But it's important to see all these different facets of Peter's life. John chapter 21, we'll see how Peter was restored to ministry. This chapter is right after the resurrection, and we'll find Peter, he had gone back to his old life of fishing. He had been broken, and he had seen his beloved friend and Savior crucified and put in the tomb. And then Jesus meets him at the Sea of Galilee. Peter, he was out on the boat fishing, and he got skunked all night long. Didn't catch a thing. And Jesus calls out to him from the shore. He says, put your net on the other side. And do you remember what happened? Peter caught so many fish, they couldn't even pull them all in. And Peter knew. Peter knew exactly who that man was on the shore. And so he, he couldn't even wait to row back in. That He jumped off the boat and, and swam into the shore to meet with Jesus. And so they sit and they have a wonderful breakfast together. And we're going to pick it up in, in verse 15. John 21, 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Can you imagine the feeling? And Peter's stomach is anticipating. What's this conversation going to be like? He says, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, then tend my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, then shepherd my sheep. And he said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Obviously, he was confused because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, then tend my sheep. And so all of that brings us back to where we started this morning in 1 Peter. And so turn there, back again, 1 Peter. Look at the pages. Feel them in your hand. Five chapters in this this epistle. And Peter is doing exactly what his Savior told him to do. He's tending his sheep through this letter. And so Church of the Canyons, we too can be tended by Peter and his words through the study of this book. Some 30 years after Peter's denial of the Lord and restoration, Peter gives us this hopeful letter. And I believe that we need to hear Peter's voice today. He uses this first epistle to create and to correct and to reinforce proper Christian worldview. He teaches us how to live out our Christian faith in a hostile world. How to endure sufferings and how to be faithful to Christ. And if anyone knew what it would take to endure suffering, to endure persecution, it was Peter. Right? Not, because, not only because he endured it, but he ultimately was martyred. On the name of, by the, uh, for the name of Christ. See, he looked back at his failures and he built upon it. And so by his example, we can avoid the same mistakes. And so, you guys didn't think I could just preach that much on one word, did you? <laughs> so we'll move on. We're going to finish verse, up to verse 2 today. So thank you for bearing with. That's Peter. That's a snapshot of who Peter was. That's the amazing grace that's, that's shown through the life of Peter. And next we're going to be looking at the amazing grace which comes through the Trinity's work in our salvation. And we're going to go like warp speed through this. Okay, Let's look at uh, the end of verse 1. Who's he writing this letter to? He's writing to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. See... These are, uh, these are aliens, right? These are people scattered abroad. They were aliens because they were driven from their hometowns, right? They were chased up to these different cities. And all those cities you can find in modern-day Turkey today. And so these cities were not their homes, right? They were transplants. And, but, but like any other believer throughout all of history, we're all aliens, right? We're all just sojourners through, the, uh, through these days. Because this earth, this this. This place is not our home, right? For our citizenship is in heaven, right? For which we await a Savior, and He is coming. This earth is not our home. And Peter, he's going to be hitting this theme all throughout his book, particularly in the first chapter. This is not our home. This is not our hope. This is not where we belong. We are aliens, and, and we're just here, just passing by. This is just a temporary residence. And then he adds, at the end of verse 1, he adds this descriptor. Who are chosen? So all these aliens that were chosen. And who are the chosen? Right? Peter is referring to those whom God chose for salvation. Before the beginning of time, before he created time, before he created time, uh, space and matter, before he created the heavens and the earth, before he created Adam and Eve, he chose. He would call out of the darkness into the light the worshipers of his son. And all three members of the Godhead are beautifully involved in salvation. 
They're beautifully involved in the salvation of sinners. And so when salvation takes place today, it's, it's a modern day miracle. God raising the dead, the spiritually dead, into new life. And it's a miracle. And we're going to go through this fast, but to just, just listen to the truths of this one verse. This will be the backside of your notes this morning. We're going to see the amazing grace in the Trinity's function in salvation. We start by the, number one, the choosing Father. We see that in verse 2. It says, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now what does foreknowledge mean? Oftentimes it's, to, it's described as if God looked down through the quarter of time and he saw who were going to believe on their own and with that foreknowledge he then chose them. Now, I, I think that's just a, uh, backwards. I think it's just a little bit backwards. And so Acts chapter 2 really helps us understand what's, what that foreknowledge is talking about. You don't have to turn there, uh, but just listen. Acts chapter 2, and if you remember what Acts chapter 2 is about, it's the day of Pentecost. And Peter is there in Jerusalem, and he's preaching a sermon. So it's, it's great. We're studying First Peter, and now we get to look back at what he's already preached to see the consistency of his theology. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Here it is. This man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting to an end the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. So Peter says, it was the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God that brought Christ to the cross. That's not God looking down through the quarter of time and seeing if Christ would go to the cross. No. That's God's planning. You could say that he determined to know that Christ would go to the cross. God knew before he created the heavens and the earth that Adam and Eve would sin. He knew that a savior needed to be provided. He knew that Christ was going to have to go to the cross. And he knows how it's all going to end. And that's the whole reason that we can have a memory verse from the book of Revelation. Right? He knows. He determined it. He has planned it. He has foreordained it. It's all part of his foreknowledge. And in our passage in 1 Peter, he explains that God the Father, his function in salvation is to choose those who would be called into salvation for his own purposes. Next we'll see, how does the Father carry that out? Right. Look again at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father... By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Here's number two in your notes. Second member on the list, the sanctifying Spirit. The sanctifying Spirit. Essentially, sanctified means to be set apart, to be consecrated. When a spiritually dead sinner has their heart regenerated, it's now set apart. Believers' hearts are now set apart from sin, and they're now consecrated to something else. And that is holiness. We're set apart from sin, now unto holiness. 
sanctification sets the believer apart from sin and unbelief, and it's the Spirit who redirects them to holiness. See, sanctification is a process, right? Sanctification in the scriptures, really, it starts the moment you're justified, right? The moment that you're declared righteous in a legal way of our sin guilt. And then for the rest of the, of the life of a believer, we say that we are going through this process of sanctification, right? And that takes effort. That takes the Spirit's help. And this is the purification process of being a lost sinner now growing in holiness. And sanctification, it's going to have an end. And I can't wait for that day. And the end of the sanctification process is glorification. When we can, can exit this body where we deal with sin and stand before, uh, stand before God fully holy and sinless, we will be glorified. We will be completely holy and without sin. And so the Holy Spirit has a function in our lives from the beginning at justification, all throughout the sanctification process, and he's the one that will take us to glorification. And we know that if Christ has saved us, then he will see us through to glorification. It's his promise. True believers cannot lose their salvation because it's not ours to lose. We didn't save ourselves, and we are not keeping ourselves, and we are not sealing ourselves. That's the Spirit's work. So be comforted, church. If the Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts through justification, and is taking us through the process of sanctification, He has already determined that He will bring us to glorification. And we can't undo that. We don't want to undo that. And so every sinner, from the mass murderer to the eight-year-old who has childlike faith, regardless of the circumstances that surround your salvation, that is a miracle. It's an absolute miracle how a dead sinner is brought to life. And then the Spirit then gives you eyes to hear, ears to hear, and replaces your, your hard heart with a heart of flesh. So that we've seen the Father's function and the Spirit's function. Let's continue in verse 2. So Peter's writing to the aliens scattered abroad who are chosen by the foreknowledge of God, the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Next we have, number 3, the atoning Son. The atoning Son. We know that Christ is the sacrificial Lamb of the Old Testament. Right? He is the, the God-man, the only God-man. And we just celebrated his incarnation just two weeks ago, right? 100% God, 100% man, born of a virgin who lived a perfect life and went to the cross. And as a perfect God-man, he is the only one that could offer himself up for the redemption of sinners. His death was payment to take the place of a lost sinner because Christ was God. So his death and resurrection were sufficient to cover the sins of, the, of those who the Father chose. And all of those who will be justified. And all of those who the Holy Spirit will sanctify. And all of those who will be glorified. And so it was his blood that was shed that makes it possible for the believer to be right with God. And so what does Peter say the whole goal of salvation is? Look at the text. Look at the text. To obey Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal if you are a Christian. Is to obey Jesus Christ. We are set apart. 
in order that you obey Jesus Christ and his teaching in scripture. Right? So salvation has to precede obedience. And that's what the Jewish people and all of humanity were going, they were going about salvation the wrong way. Every false religion on the planet or that has ever existed or will ever exist puts the cart before the horse. They say, in order to gain salvation, you have to be obedient. That's not what Peter says. And that's the whole point of the Old Testament system. The whole point of the Old Testament system and why it exists is to show you that you cannot be obedient enough. You can't do enough for salvation. And so whether it's the Catholic Church or any other false religion, they are trying to get you to obey just a list of do's and don'ts in order to earn your salvation. But true salvation is entirely the other way around. God is the one who saves you. He puts the Holy Spirit inside of you. He puts a desire in you to please God and obey Christ. And so the best way to understand the end of this verse, right, be sprinkled with his blood, is just to listen. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Exodus chapter 24, verse 4 through 8. I'll read it for you. He's, and this is at, at Mount Sinai. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 uh, pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of, son, of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls and peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took about half the blood and put it into basins, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant... What God had just given to him, he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of all the people. And this is what the people did. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses, he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Did you catch it there? The scriptures were written. The people made a covenant. That they were going to obey the words of the Lord. And as a symbol, as a symbol of the sealing of that covenant, Moses took blood from the altar and sprinkled it on the people. So in the same symbolic sense, Christ's death on the cross and his shedding of blood has been sprinkled on us as a symbolic sealing of that covenant. And so Peter, he ends his introduction this way. It says, if you have accepted Christ as your Lord, if you have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, then may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. In just two verses, Peter hits on the themes that we're going to see all throughout this book. We're going to see themes about aliens and saving power and sanctification, being obedient to Christ and so on. And this is almost like a doxology. And it's at the beginning of the letter. He's just described the function of the Trinity in salvation. It's so rich. But these verses, you know, they don't don't explain every aspect of salvation. And and if you have questions, or if this is new to you, or you want to know more about it, about this gospel message, about this good news, come talk to me afterwards. You, You saw all the elders stand up here. Come find one of them. It's It's... Today is the day of salvation. If there's breath, repent and believe so that you may be forgiven of your sins. So I hope that this brief study this morning has just whet your appetite 
and got you excited to come back next week as we continue on in this book of 1 Peter and, and in the coming months as we study this rich and beautiful book from the Apostle Peter. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come before you just humbled. As we studied the life of Peter, we know that he was just a regular man and who, who in here could say anything different? We are just, just men. No, nothing special. I pray that we would be Christ exalting in our hearts and our words and our actions. Throughout the, the fact that we are fallible, we do fall. May our passions ignite the, 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 the love that we have for you. Father, there are times where we fall, where we become broken, where our faith might be shaken. But we know that you hold us true, you hold us fast, and you're working within us to sanctify us, sealing us for glorification. And if you have saved us, you will take us there. Let our confidence be in you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it impacts our life centuries later. The truth is just so rich and so good. Thank you for your word. Pray these things in your name. Amen.